This is Health First Talks, where we share information to help the healthcare community meet the daily challenges of medical emergency readiness, patient safety, and compliance. Welcome to the Health First live event. We're excited to share a very hot topic on everybody's mind, uh, shielding your practice from the looming twindemic COVID-19 and influenza. I think this is uh, a hot topic on everybody's minds uh, these days. And we're excited to present three leading experts in their respective fields, Dr. John Graham, Dr. Fiona Collins, and Dr. Scott Cohen. Um, all three of these will be uh, discussing their perspectives around this topic. And also feel free to enter any questions that you may have in the Q&A section on the Zoom uh, meeting right in the main navigation bar. With that, I'll hand it over to Dr. Fiona Collins to kick it off. Thank you, Grace. During our discussion today, we're going to look at COVID-19 and influenza. We'll start by looking at where we are today. We'll then examine information on the flu and COVID-19 and areas probably where there's a lack of information or at the moment insufficient information. And then lastly, we will focus on vaccination um, with respect uh, specifically to influenza at this point. Again, as we discuss these, please don't hesitate to ask us questions by clicking on the Q&A in the Zoom navigation bar. We may address some of these while we actively discuss our three themes. And additionally, we'll definitely discuss them during the Q&A portion of this webinar. So without further ado, let's begin our discussion. Okay. So where are we today? We know we've seen surges in most states in the US recently, as well as in other countries. Certainly in Colorado, where I live, we have recently seen uh, testing levels that have fortunately increased, uh, typically between 18, 19 and up to 24, 25,000. The positivity rate on those individual days has increased and it now ranges from about 20, 21% up to 24, 25%, which is a pretty scary number. So Dr. Scott, what are your insights into this situation, not specifically Colorado, uh, with regards to infection rates, hospital rates, and any trends you're seeing? Thanks, Fiona. Well, as you know, I do both public health as well as both in, uh, inpatient and ambulatory patient care, which I think has given me, unfortunately, a, a bit of a worrisome perspective on what's happening both uh, countrywide as well as even in New York, which, which, which had been uh, really in a lull for COVID cases, but now like many areas of the country, uh, it is really starting to creep up. We had been well below 1% positivity rate now, uh, I believe over 3%. Um, that may be masked in New York by the fact that we test so many people. We are um, one of the leaders, uh, probably because we got hit hardest the first, but uh, for example, yesterday we tested about 195,000 people just in that one day. But of course that's on 19 million um, residents. Um, but also at the same time had about 5,000 positives, uh, whereas we had been running under five or 600 uh, just about a month or so ago. That has also led to increased, as you know, hospitalizations, increased death rates. And we all know, unfortunately, that awful number that we're hearing throughout the country 
of death rates of, of total deaths in the United States alone of over a quarter million people. Unfortunately, uh, because you know we continue to to increase our numbers, um, you know it took I forget the number I want to say 90 days to get to our first million cases. Now it's taking six days for each yeah. subsequent million. It's projected to go down to three days for each subsequent million if we keep on this rise. That's a public health nightmare. Um, and unfortunately, uh, some areas in the Midwest are significantly worse, but uh, the vast majority of the states have had very significant rises um, over the past uh, few months. Yeah, I noticed today, about an hour ago, we, were, we popped over the 12 million number and we haven't finished counting today. So it's a pretty serious situation. It is. So John, are you seeing any trends uh, in your office and what are you hearing from your dental colleagues? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, as far as, as trending nationwide in dental offices, and, and one thing that's important to keep in mind is that early on, the CDC had identified uh, actually dental hygienists as the highest risk um, specialty in both medicine and dentistry, uh, followed by dentists. And so and now I don't know if that's still their uh, stance, although it would stand to reason uh, just because dental hygienists typically expose themselves to aerosolized saliva more than any other specialist in medicine or dentistry, especially when they're using cavitrons to do um, scaling and root planing and just generalized cleanings. But the good news is, uh, and it was just released um, this last week in the Journal of the American Dental Association in a, uh, in a uh, study that was done just by phone uh, interviews of dentists, uh, just a little over 2,000 dentists were surveyed, and the numbers were impressive, uh, impressive in a good way. And I'll read them to you. So the all uh, for U.S. dentists, it is approximated that 0.9% were estimated to have a confirmed or probable COVID-19 infection with a margin of error of 0.5%. That's extraordinary, if you ask me, especially for those that are in an environment where uh, we are having patients remove masks, aerosolize their saliva, and do that every single day, all day long. Now, part of that, not part of it, all of it is because of, of a pretty extraordinary effort on the part of dentists to, to practice you know, above and beyond what they would normally do for infection control, using face shields and masks and eye shields and high volume suction, um, and some of them Extraordinary. I'll show you a photograph of one later, maybe that is. It looks like it's from the Matrix. I don't know. It's. Uh, it would be hard for me to work in those conditions without giggling all day. But you know, that's its job. However, uh, I would say that I think that the trends noticed in dental offices are just are the nationwide trends. You know, we're probably hearing and seeing more patients who are. Um, who were found to be positive with COVID-19. My own daughter um, had COVID-19 and was symptomatic for about a day. So uh, yeah, I, I, I would say that we're, we're, we're hitting national uh, norms, but as far as a, a, a profession at risk, I'm really proud of the concerted effort that the American Dental Association and all of my dental colleagues have done in trying to minimize and mitigate those risks. It's interesting on the medical care side, uh, my home organization actually did antibody studies um, within our facility we averaged, I think it was right around 2% positivity rate. And I looked at that across other, other organizations and it was running right around the same. 
So the fact that they came up with a 0.9% rate, the general pop that I've general population across the US that I've seen across, you know, all 300 and some odd million people mm -hmm. is around 3% positive. That's pretty impressive that medical yeah. and dental providers have done so incredibly well with protecting themselves. And I think that's a message we can give to our patients in general is, you know, our numbers are lower despite, you know, I, I had a, a flight physical today and they asked me if I was exposed to patients with COVID as part of my screening to come in the door. Well, of course I'm exposed to people with COVID every day. Right. Um, freaked them out a little bit. And, you know, John, you probably are too, but the reality is that we do so much to protect ourselves, not just to protect ourselves, but our families and our patients that our, our exposures are orders of magnitude higher, mm -hmm. but our infection rates are orders of magnitude lower. That tells yeah. you that PPE works. That's exactly right. I think that's the take home message is that if you put, put standards and well understood standards and protocols in place, you can bring the uh, infectivity rate down below normal infectivity rates of any other viral infection. And, and that's saying something for SARS-CoV-2 because the hallmark of SARS-CoV-2 as far as a coronavirus goes, as you know, Scott, is that it's, it's wildly infectious more yeah. so than, than we've seen for, with a lot of, with a lot of viral pathogens. So uh, your, I think your observations are, are well taken. And, and I think, also, it is a very good point that you make that it is a, a, a great um, example to the, the public at large that it's not something to be feared as long as you take it seriously and you, and you take steps. And if you take those steps, we've got a very exposed population who is below the national norm, at, like you said, by orders of magnitude exposure and by orders of magnitude lower infectivity rate. So I think that's probably a a, a take home message for today. And Fiona, of course, is the infection control specialist. So Fiona, I don't, I don't know your thoughts on what, what we're talking about here. Um, I, I do agree that I think people have gone to extraordinary efforts uh, to meet all of the requirements and the guidelines, uh, certainly on PPE. One of the difficulties, as we all know, was a lack of availability um, after the pandemic took off. Uh, and really uh, that was unavoidable here. And it was a supply chain that started overseas, primarily China, um, and they were using so much themselves that we didn't get it. So I think that was a difficulty. Uh, but when it's been available, I, I do believe that uh, the vast majority of people have done everything they possibly could and followed the guidelines, uh, both for themselves and the whole dental team, but uh, as well for families and the community in general. Uh, the other interesting thing, if you look at it from the perspective of when it began and when the study was completed, when it began, we, we didn't know it was already here. We suspected it might be. We didn't really know. We weren't taking extra precautions. Uh, the public wasn't. The, the professionals weren't. They were using their standard precautions. And uh, so if you, if you look at that, then it, it really is quite extraordinary. Um, I'll tell you what, I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, Scott or Fiona, but uh, we have, at least, I can tell you in my own office, a couple of my staff members that are responsible for ordering supplies are starting to get a little anxious because they're starting to see the same thing that we saw back in March. It was fine for probably all of July, August, September, October, but now we're starting to click on, you know, glove boxes and, and uh, you know, N95 masks and we're getting big red no availability signs popping back up. And I also noticed at Costco, 
last week there was no toilet paper. So <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, whether it is just concern, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that this is cold and flu season, right? And so no matter what we're dealing with, as far as a viral pathogen goes, it's going to increase. There's, you can't yeah. avoid that. Yeah, no, yeah. you can't. The other, I, I do hope that we'll get more um, surveillance data for dental professionals and for that matter, medical professionals. Mm -hmm. You think back to the study, it was completed in June. So in a sense, that's a double-edged sword. We started not knowing it was already present. So that's a, a negative from the perspective of exposure. However, during part of that time, offices were shut down. So you, um, having said that, we were still in the community. Everybody was in the community the same as everybody else. So I also do wonder if, if just the fact that extra precautions were being taken in the offices, that the people who work there were also more cognizant of the risks when they were out in the community. And I think you would probably find that they were more careful out in the community as well uh, than the general population, just purely due to what they'd be exposed to during the day and background knowledge. Absolutely. And, and you know, honestly, I think to John's point, as your, well as yours, Fiona, you know, we, we as medical professionals tend to pay attention to more of this, but we are unfortunately going to be suffering from the PPE shortage again. New York State has mandated healthcare facilities have 90 days in stock based on their normal burn rates. Um, the, the problem with that is, you know, as we as we lose stock around the country, mainly because of the Midwest, uh, everyone's going to be struggling with that. And I think one of the things, I don't know, maybe Fiona, you can highlight for us is there's been this back and forth on reusing of specifically N95 masks. I think we all reuse the reusable gowns that are washable and, you know, that's very safe. But, and even the face shields, you know, you disinfect them on severe or whatever. Um, but there's this back and forth about how long do you wear N95 masks? How many, how long before you, you put them under UV sterilization or gas peroxide sterilization? Um, and then how many times can you do that? And I, I don't know if you've read any data on that, Fiona, to help us extend our PPE, or there's really no good data on that. Uh, the data's mixed. I've seen numbers ranging from um, people who are very strict and say only use it once you can't use it again, to you can use it for a couple of hours if it's one patient, to you can use it for maximum six, and then different techniques of um, dis or decontaminating them. I think one of the key points is you, can't, you cannot decontaminate it if it's already soiled. So one of the suggestions or two of the suggestions for that have been if you are going to reuse make sure you're using a face shield, which face shields or goggles are the general recommendation now anyway in the guidelines. So if you use a face shield, you've got the double advantage. Uh, first of all, there's less exposure for your face, but, but you're also much less likely to soil that N95. Uh, the other trick that's been suggested, if you're wearing an N95, wear um, a surgical mask over it. It could be a level one, two, or three, and then that may get soiled, but it should protect or hopefully will protect the N95 from becoming soiled. So that helps as well. Uh, the vaporized hydrogen peroxide and the other techniques that are being used are generally not available in the dental setting unless someone has to be working in a larger hospital facility that is already doing that. And one of the methods they've been using there is actually having your own box for your own identifies before they go for decontam. So that adds another layer of complication. Now, a quick question for Fiona. I just use the same pair of nitrile gloves on all my patients per day uh, 
Just kidding. I'm just trying to see if anybody out there is trying to see if anybody out there is falling asleep. I don't do that. (laughs) That's a joke for the record, everybody. That was a joke. I don't do that. But I do want to ask you a question about the concern, which we found early on, and maybe it's just because people have adapted now, widespread mask use. But if you start using an N95 mask and then you couple it with either a surgical mask, a grade one, two, or three, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, we were seeing a lot of patients ending up in the ER with hypercapnia. And the problem is I had one of my own staff members that did that. She ended up going to the emergency room. The problem with hypercapnia, and most of you know what that is, so I'm not going to try to tell anybody other than it is a buildup of, of, uh, of carbon monoxide in the blood, um, at, or not carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide in the blood. The problem is that it, it, it can tend, and correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but it takes a while in order for someone to start really feeling sick, bad, because it takes a while to build up. And the other problem is off-gassing doesn't happen instantaneously like it does with other volatile gases and other uh, uh, aromatic uh, gases that people might be breathing. Um, for dentists are very, very uh, aware and comfortable with understanding how nitrous oxide works. And nitrous oxide off-gasses within about 30 seconds of turning, the, turning it off, right? But uh, to have someone uh, normalize their CO2 levels takes a while. And, and we had a lot of people. Have you noticed, uh, have you heard of that uh, lately or was that just early on? Well, we have seen, so hypercapnia or elevated CO2 levels, which tend to cause sleepiness and eventually CO2 narcosis where people are really unconscious. It almost looks like a drug overdose. Um, I see in the hospital with fair frequency um, that is not all that common. Um, it, it's actually fairly rare. It's probably those people who are normally CO2 retainers anyway, either people mm-hmm. with morbid obesity or, or COPD or whatever. What is extremely common, and um, I did a talk with Stan Malamud uh, a few months ago, and we talked over a case uh, which is fairly common, um, and it's something in the literature that's, that's really well described now, but it's the silent hypoxia. And this is a problem in dental offices as well, because someone could come in feeling really well. Yeah, I had a cough doc a few days ago, but I feel fine or not even mention anything. They feel absolutely fine. Uh, but they come in and, and, you know, they actually look pretty well. But if you happen to do a C- or, uh, a blood, an ABG on them or a PO2, which is what would be likely done in a dental offices, you know, an O2 sat with a finger monitor, uh, <clears throat> you sometimes can get them as low as 70. Uh, I have had several. (laughs) Now that is not consistent with life. And those people um, who are not intervened quickly wind up in heart failure and die. I mean, it's, it's, it just is what it is, but the problem with those people, and I've had this experience myself is you look at them and go, they look okay. They really don't look bad. They're not struggling. They're not short of breath. They may look a little purple around the lips or not always, um, I can tell you it is scary and bizarre and we need to follow it. And one of the things I think that Stan and I are recommending at this previous talk is one of the things you could consider um, is if you're doing any procedure that's going to require nitrous oxide or dental damming or you're, where you're, you know, uh, blocking some of the airway, check a pulse ox first. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, not a bad idea. Or um, even a nasal cannula, right? I mean, with just, if you've got it handy, which you should, and you've got a high risk patient. I mean, every dental office does, right? I mean, you could do low flow O2 with a nasal can if you if you've got a like you said an obese patient. You get you take a pulse ox and they're at eighty eight, 
<laughs> or, you know, 90 might not be a bad idea if you're going to put a dam on them for yeah. 45 minutes to an hour to slip a nasal cannula with a little low flow O2. Yeah, and I think the other recommendation, and, and one thing our uh, Health First uh, staff is reminding us, just please, if you have any questions, put them in the Q&A. We have a few in there, uh, but please do it. But there's a couple other recommendations we can pass along here today as well. And one is, you know, if you do pulse ox, if it's below 94, 95, don't do anything. Um, they need medical evaluation. If it's below yeah. 90, then you need to dial 911 or if you're mm -hmm. in Europe, 999. Um, right you know, really, this is something that needs to be taken very seriously. Yeah. And, you know, since you're probably not taking a pulse ox on every patient, there are people that live at different O2 saturations and have done so for years. But without the benefit of knowing their previous measurements, you're sort of, uh, you know, in the dark a little bit. So I think, I think caution would be exercising caution and a little over caution would be a good idea, Scott. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And from the perspective of the dental office, um, wearing a face shield is is so helpful in not getting those sod rather than using a surgical face mask. And the other thing to consider is what, what are the OSHA requirements, which I'm not going to go into just now, or the OSHA recommendations with re respect to use of N95s. So if, yeah. if we turn uh, briefly to testing for SARS-CoV-2, I'd like to ask both of you what your perspectives are in general on the testing. Um, and then more specifically, uh, really for John, how do you perceive the role of dental professionals in, in performing SARS-CoV-2 from your personal perspective? Yeah, Scott, do you want to answer that first part of that? Sure. Yeah, I'll give the background maybe, John, and then yeah. uh, maybe the practical application of the dental office uh, would be better for you. Uh, there, are, there are two major types of uh, SARS-CoV-2 testing. Um, one is for testing for particles of the virus or viral RNA, uh, and the other is testing for antibodies. Um, antibodies historically were mainly IgG antibodies, meaning that you did, were you or were you not historically exposed? In my mind, fairly useless other than for population studies like my organization did and others did just to see how well did we do. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, that's very helpful. Now, there are newer tests that are coming out with IgM studies, meaning have you been acutely exposed within whatever that acute IgM window is? I'm not still not certain on the utility of that, to be perfectly honest. Um, yeah. There's a high variability in when people mount IgM studies um, and, or IgM uh, numbers and, and whether or not this works. So the two tests that we're really uh, working on are the SARS-CoV-2 antigen testing, like we do a flu antigen test, and the SARS-CoV-2 PCR, COVID PCR, um, <clears throat> excuse me, COVID PCR is by far uh, much more reliable, much more accurate. Um, and reliability and accuracy are not really medical terms. We use terms like sensitivity, specificity, you know, negative predictive value, positive predictive value. But in short, we can shorten it and say accuracy. And I'll liken it just by saying, if you take an antigen test, which is clearly cheaper, simpler, easier. You don't have to get bits of brain tissue on the, you know, on the Q-tip to, to run the test. Um, these are antigen tests that some even apparently use saliva. Those tests are very quick, simple, cheap, and probably could even be done in the home. And there's some tests that are coming out um, in that stead. The problem with them is that their sensitivity and specificity are fairly low. And by that, I mean that, um, because they're not all that sensitive or specific, 
if you have a population where only one or 2% of people have the disease, the prevalence is low, and you test yeah. them with something that has low uh, sensitivity and specificity, then the accuracy of the test is gonna be uh, pretty low. So what you really want is, you want to rule out people having SARS. So you want people yeah. to do this test at home before they come in to see John yeah. and rule it out. Um, yeah. It doesn't work for that. Now PCR is a lot better, but a lot more expensive. And the wait times now for return on results could be five days uh, because our, our labs are so overloaded and also the wait time just to get tested is so high across the country, hours and sometimes days. Yeah. And you know, it's changing pretty rapidly for, for, dental, for the dental setting. I, I think there's an advantage, an inherent advantage to at least consider testing in a dental setting because people go to their dentists far more frequently than they go to their, their family medicine doctor. Um, they're supposed to anyway. I mean, they should be going twice, twice a year. I don't, I don't know if they do all that much. I surely can tell you that they surely do in an orthodontic office. I mean, well, on average, see about 65 to 75 patients a day, and that's not unusual. And those are just the patients. Those are not the people that come with the patients, right? So we have to have some pretty good screening protocols in place, which we do um, from testing with temperature um, as on our staff as well. Um, you know, there's some isothermal testing that uh, is, is starting to come on the market for PCR that makes it a much more rapid turnaround. Here is a, a, an issue though. And, and the other thing is that temporarily CLIA requirements have been um, loosened a little bit to allow for practitioners that would normally have to have a certified, be it certified as a CLIA laboratory to be able to perform testing like that. They don't necessarily have to in all cases, but here's the, here is a philosophical question that I think deserves just a few minutes of discussion. And that is, We've never done this before. We have never tested widespread worldwide for positivity of a disease or positivity of exposure to an antigen. We have not done that. We have tested for people who are actually sick, who are uh, seeking medical help, or they have been exposed and have the potential to uh, you know, make somebody sick in their home or, or whatnot. The numbers that we talk about now, which shifted in the media, uh, maybe four months ago, maybe three months ago, we stopped talking about case, uh, cases. Oh, excuse me, we stopped talking about hospitalizations and deaths. Not that we don't talk about that now, but if you look in any at any news broadcast news, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about people that are positive, they're testing positive. And the vast majority of the people that test positive, this is demonstrable, and anybody can determine this themselves, the vast majority of those positive tests don't even know they're sick, don't even know that they have any disease process going on at all. Some of them do, some of them it's very mild, lack of loss of taste, lack of smell ability, but there are a the vast majority of those individuals that have zero symptomatology. That's a philosophical question I think we need to discuss because it wouldn't be a big deal if it wasn't, it, it wasn't elevating the temperature of panic in the community worldwide, which then translates to a lack of PPE, a, uh, and then ultimately to what we observed not long ago, which was an utter and complete shutdown of the world economy. This is not benign, and this isn't something that just needs to be passed over as 
you know, hyperbolic discussion, it's serious. And so uh, I, I think there is a role for, to get back to the initial question, I, I think there is a, a role, a very legitimate role for dental professionals who are seeing patients, and especially because of the fact that many dental professionals are at a higher risk group than any others uh, because of aerosolized saliva routinely every single day on, on nearly, or not nearly, but many of their patients. So I think it's something that would be beneficial, but just like you said, Scott, you, you've really got to get down to, and it doesn't even matter about specificity or, uh, or sensitivity, it gets down to positive predictive and negative predictive value of the test, right? I mean, you could have a wildly, you know, a, a wildly sensitive test, but it, you know, if it's negative predictive value is 54%, doesn't do you any good. In fact, it's dangerous because you may assume something that is not accurate based upon your test results. So exactly what I was going to say, you know, if yeah. it, and one of the reasons I'm really against antigen testing, unless it's to a population, either a very large population, tens of thousands, which it makes sense, you know, yeah. like college campuses. Okay. It makes sure. sense to do that because the, the statistics make sense. But my worry is, you know, John Graham, you know, his staff says, oh, that patient was negative. I can relax my hygiene or whatever. Right. Even if they don't do it on purpose, even if they don't do it, you know, consciously, subconsciously, it's there. They know that patient was negative. Yeah. And it's kind of like the, oh, should I use gloves and, you know, whatever, when I do, you know, whatever procedure, you know, before COVID, it was universal precautions. And yeah. I remember a student at one point saying, well, how do I know whether the person's HIV positive or negative? or hep C or whatever they were worried about, who mm -hmm. cares? Doesn't matter. No. And you uh, don't. You don't. <laughs> you probably don't. No. Assume they do, right? Yeah. Assume they do. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring that up, Scott, because theoretically, we should not have had to increase any infection control policy. Right, Fiona? I mean, theoretically, <laughs> we were all supposed to be observing universal precautions and we wouldn't necessarily have needed to change much at all. But the reality is most practitioners, if they're going to be honest, we're not. Just simply we're not. Well, really, the standard precautions uh, was okay for routine care. And it was okay until something came along that had a further risk of transmission. If you think back, it, it's always been recommended on transmission-based precautions that during, for instance, an influenza epidemic that you wear an N95. The question mm -hmm. is how many dental offices in particular actually did that? So right. the, the protocols were in place, but there's a much greater need for it now because of what has happened with this emergence. Um, it's no longer emergence of this particular pandemic. Going back to a couple mm -hmm. of other things that you said, John, if you think about the, the historical or philosophical aspect and people maybe not taking it seriously enough, Think about what's happened in the last hundred years. There hasn't been anything like this. All the populations in about three generations has seen is uh, the emergence and availability of antibiotics, which of course is now also problematic with uh, multi-drug antibiotic resistance. Um, so they saw that, they saw diseases being cured that killed members of their families. Uh, mm -hmm. They saw improvements in, uh, had already occurred in terms of engineering and sanitation. And so there really hasn't been anything like this that people would say, oh, I could die of that or my family could die of that. So I think it's philosophically um, also partly a difficult thing for people to really uh, not just buy into, I think people are buying into it for sure now, uh, but actually to internalize and particularly younger groups 
who uh, can carry it if they're asymptomatic, as can everybody else, but they're also less likely to be aware that they're ill because it would be very mild and they may just continue on. And I think um, we definitely you, need to, oh, I'm sorry, go right ahead. After you. <laughs> well, I was just gonna say, I think this is something that we ought to talk about maybe on the next um, episode. That's what we're calling these. I don't know if they're called episodes or, or, or whatever. No, but the thing that I think is important to talk about is, yeah, it is a, a wildly infectious disease, but I think next time we ought to talk about the actual death rates because the death rates are not as bad as we thought they were, not even close to being as bad as we thought they were. And in fact, uh, if we really, if anybody can do this. And if anybody goes to cdc.gov slash coronavirus slash COVID, uh, you can look at all of the statistics, at least the, the statistics that are being available, being made available online. They tell a story, and we're not going to go into that today, but they tell a story. And the story is not what I think most of us might be getting the, uh, the understanding of if we're listening to the media. But we, we, we should talk about that because it's, it's worthy of discussion. I agree. And we'll be doing some podcasts as well. So I think that that's a good thing to discuss. Just one thing to be cautious about. Yeah, the death rates, you know, 250,000 on, I don't remember how many million we're up to now. Um, I think the last numbers I saw was between a one and 2% death rate, obviously a lot higher in people with, with significant comorbid conditions or, or the very elderly. Yeah. But the reality is um, the majority of people are either asymptomatic or symptomatic to a minor degree, just like influenza or other coronaviruses, rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, definitely. But there are a high proportion of patients who really, and I don't wanna say high, I shouldn't say that. There are a significant number of patients um, who get sick and wind up sick for a, a long period of time. It is quite debilitating. I don't, I don't wanna say it's over 10%, it's probably not, but that's still a huge number of people with tens of millions of people getting this disease and being out of work and debilitated and wind up with chronic lung disease and things like that. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a bigger I, problem than a death rate. No question about it. And I've got it since I've got it sitting right here because I have the CDC's website up right now and I'll just rattle them off very quickly because there's only three numbers. The first one is, uh, this is reported since January 21st of 2020, total cases 11,465,722. Uh, cases in the last seven days per 100,000 individuals is 49.7. And then the total deaths is 249,670. That is, uh, up, and that is up 1,836 new deaths. Um, and that was updated November 19th, 2020 at 12.16 p.m. So let's move on and just briefly touch on uh, what happens with flu and COVID-19 at the same time, our twindemic. And then the uh, question after that that we'll discuss briefly is uh, flu shot or no flu shot. So briefly on the, uh, the co-infection situation with COVID-19 and influenza, is it a concern or is it not a concern? I think it is a concern. Uh, we have seen a few cases of it, but I don't think it's as anywhere near as much a concern as, what, as we thought. And part of that um, is based on some data that we've seen from the Southern Hemisphere, where number one, the flu cases uh, like in New Zealand uh, were off dramatically compared to years past um, and in other areas as well. Uh, and also um, I think because we're doing so much work to reduce transmission by social distancing, mask wearing, hand washing, 
you know, redu reduction of gatherings, things like that, the likelihood is that we will follow the same trend. The, the risk is that if we follow some of the same guidance that we have in the past with just getting together in large groups and, and not wearing masks and things like that, we might not wind up with the same situation that they did in the Southern Hemisphere. Right, well, there, there is some preliminary data in Europe as well. And in the UK, they've also seen fewer flu cases. Um, so obviously, if you've got a respiratory disease and you're isolating yourself or you're reducing your contact with people and you're wearing masks, if everybody does it, you're going to see um, some effect. There is actually a study that just came out and it was uh, just emerging data and it wasn't peer reviewed, but it was of national surveillance data. And they did find there, were, uh, there weren't many in the numbers that they had, but there were a few who were co-infected and they found that they were likely to have more serious disease and they had more than double uh, the morbidity rate. So it is a cause for concern. Uh, the cause for concern from the perspective of having influenza is uh, perhaps not as much as it was, as you said, because of reduced exposure. So if we look at that, the last question is, so do you have a flu shot or do you not have a flu shot? Absolutely. If anything you can do to reduce, so number one is to reduce your morbidity and mortality associated with co-infection, which as Fiona, you, you just said, is fairly low. But here's the other problem is you call me on a Saturday night, you know, that you have fever, cough, chills. I have no idea if it's the flu or coronavirus or something else. The reality is if you got a flu shot, you'd have a reduction of, of risk of having influenza as causing that. So at least it'd be more likely to focus us down one pathway or the other. I think uh, I had a very uh, interesting conversation with a good friend of mine who's an infectious disease physician here in Salt Lake City. And when you, when you really start talking about the, the virtues of a flu shot, all you have to do is look at it in terms of public health and look at it in terms of lost uh, wages, lost income, lost GDP, right? I mean, that's what public health physicians look at it in terms of as they should, because it, it isn't all of a sudden just about you. It's about the contributions that a swath of individuals applied to any economy globally. And it's, it is just, uh, it's just a, now, now we're talking about flu shot. We're not talking about coronavirus. It, that's, mm. I think we ought to have another discussion. Don't you think that's worthy of a, of a whole separate episode? We should talk about the, oh, yeah. uh, the potential for, for the, the emerging, um, uh, you know, flu shots for for or, uh, shots for coronavirus, but for flu shots, yeah, I think that any anybody anybody would say that that at least has looked at it from a from a public health standpoint. Uh, you know, you can make the argument that some of the flu shots don't necessarily work for that particular strain, but that is the constraint of the of the predictive power that anybody has when they're developing these. It's a it's a crapshoot. I mean, you know, you're looking at global trends and you're trying to predict something because you got to make it six months earlier. Uh, that sucks because, you know, you're, you're using emerging trends as your predictor in actually developing the, the, the antiviral uh, or not the antiviral, but, but the, the immune injection. And so it's a tough challenge that is proposed to any of these companies that are trying to stay ahead of the eight ball and it's not easy to do that's for sure but if you look at the number of people that lose work and whatnot that didn't get it the flu shot i think everybody would be fairly compelled to say it's probably a good idea and, and there is one other aspect to that as well in addition to the overall public health aspect and the individual if you think about it okay it's not 100 effective the flu shot but it's 
typically more than 50, some years 70, 80, it varies. Uh, so the predictability of which strains do you put, which types do you put in, uh, you have to predict it, as you said. The other aspect is people tend to think of flu as a mild disease. People still die of it. They do die oh, of it. Oh, Fiona, more people die of that than COVID-19. A lot more people I, die of it. I, I don't think we've seen enough data to, to, to say that, to be honest, from my perspective, from what I'm reading. But the other yep. key point I was going to make is if you, if you have people that are hospitalized with influenza, which is uh, either preventable or if you've had the vaccine, it will be milder. So you're unlikely to or less likely to be hospitalized. You're taking up a bed that could be used for a COVID patient. So you end up, the hospitals are already becoming really swamped again, um, including the ones that weren't before. If you now heap influenza cases on top of that that were preventable, uh, you end up with not just the public health crisis, you end up with the hospital and uh, the healthcare crisis as well. So I think that's the third reason. I think all of those are good reasons to go ahead and have a flu shot. Mm -hmm. and, and you're right, John and Scott, we definitely uh, should discuss not only this further, but other aspects of flu and COVID-19, and more specifically, in a separate one, vaccination uh, against COVID-19. That uh, seems to be coming along nicely. Hopefully, hopefully that's the case. Absolutely. So let's, uh, if anyone has questions, please do use the Q&A button down in the Zoom navigation bar. And let me take a look right now. Okay. Uh, when, so here's one, when caring for low-risk patients in an outpatient office setting, is it ever appropriate to only wear a face shield without a mask underneath? No. Uh, I'm saying no. <laughs> what do you think, Fiona? No. Uh, to be honest, uh, what are they a low risk for? The standard precautions uh, for treating every patient or rather for regarding every patient as if they were infectious. Those standard precautions include the use of a face mask. They don't include the use of an N95, that's transmission-based um, from COVID-19 guidelines, which are of course related to that. Uh, but it's not appropriate to treat low-risk patients. And presumably this is a dental or a medical office, let's say it's a dental office. Um, no, you should follow the CDC recommendations. The current ones, the guidelines while COVID-19 is around, um, one, if and when, uh, presumably once a week over this, you should still be following the current CDC guidelines at that time. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think that's a, that is a justifiable question, however, for looking yes. at it in terms of people worried about having access to PPE and dwindling access to PPE, because we got to keep in mind that, and rightly so, but uh, dental practitioners and others have been given a tremendous guilt trip because we've been told that we're sucking up all the PPE and there's people dying in hospitals and the doctors are standing in the hallway because they don't have enough PPE. I'm being a little dramatic, but it is we feel that guilt. I mean, there's no question about it. We feel like, well, gee, we're taking these away from frontline people, even though we are frontline people. Um, so I think it's a reasonable question for sure. But I'll tell you something. If it is, if I am, if my back is against the wall and I need to treat somebody and I don't have a mask, I'm not going to treat that person. Yeah. I'm going to go find a mask or I'm going to send that person to somebody that has a mask. Yeah. Yeah. And I know people that have done exactly that. They've sent the patient... Uh, to a colleague who still has some masks previously. Yeah, we've, we've had whole practices close in our area because they didn't yeah. have PPE. And yeah. other practices that were, you know, more hospital-based uh, start taking care of the patients for them who have acute needs. And that's, it's not optimal, but it's okay. It's the right, yeah. right thing to do. 
And a shout out to some of my orthodontic colleagues because we really tried a group, a, a large group of them, when it really came, you know, when it was right down to the wire back in March and, and early April. A lot of them uh, filled up entire truck lo- trunk loads in their cars of masks and and of gloves and and drove it up to the to their local hospital and said, "Could you guys use these?" And they were obviously welcome with open arms. And so, you know, it, it is a community effort. We ought to keep that in mind. We hope that there won't be a shutdown. Uh, my gosh, we hope that there won't be a shutdown again, because that really, that the devastation that that, that had on people was could be arguably worse than what we've seen with the disease. And that's also something we ought to discuss, discuss at another. Boy, there's a lot of episodes, you guys. There's got to be a lot of episodes. we got so much to talk about. But we yeah, do. I think those points are all well taken. There are a couple of other questions. Uh, one was about using uh, UV light box and reusing masks and how many times, if not soiled. Um, I think the point is that the um, you, you would have to fo- follow the guidelines, first of all, on reuse and um, rationalization of use. Uh, UV light boxes in and of themselves, I'm unaware of any data that supports them. Um, their use and UV light boxes vary greatly. What's the wavelength? What type of UV? So I would not recommend that, and it's not in the recommendations. Uh, can you run them through an autoclave? That's actually been tried. Uh, they, they tried that about 20 years ago, and, and they've tried it mm. since. And in fact, that high temperature steam in the autoclave will destroy the ability mm. of the mask or the N95 to protect. So yeah. it's a nice idea, and, and I wish it were possible because it would make things a lot easier for everybody, but it, but it isn't, um, it's not recommended for good reasons. It really renders them useless. Somebody could make a lot of money if they invented an autoclavable mask. I'm just saying, you're yeah. welcome. <laughs> and some others would make a lot less money, but I think the concern is not money, the concern is the protection, right? I'm just throwing it out there. So low temperature, um, for instance. So is the current protocol for infection prevention in the dental setting sufficient? So if we're talking about current, we're, we're talking about now under COVID-19. So John, you're in dental offices or mm-hmm. your own office. What's your yep. perspective on that? We, talk, we oh, talked about the numbers yeah. and the good data so far on exposure yeah. compared to uh, mm-hmm. positivity rates. Yeah, I'll tell you just from my own practice, since the since the the outbreak started back in um, that we were aware of in late February or early March, um, we have had uh, one staff member uh, who tested positive for COVID nineteen, one and only one. Uh, my, my daughter had it, but I didn't, and I was tested three times post her uh, positive test. Uh, and then, as far as we're aware of, we have not had a single patient cancellation. Uh, because of uh, because of COVID nineteen. Now, what I will say is that we do have a lot of extra protocols, and I'll just I'll just tell you those very quickly. The first one is that nobody comes into our office ever without having an escort, so they get to our office. Remember, we're seeing about sixty five patients a day. That's how many I see. But some, I mean, there was a time when I was seeing one hundred and thirty patients a day by myself. So you know, orthodontic offices are different than any other medical or dental specialty because of the volume of patients we see. The way that we do it now is when a patient arrives, they text us or call us tell us that they're in the parking lot. We go out and we get them. We bring them into our office. Now I'm up on the second floor on the landing between the first and second floor where they're escorted to. There's a table where their temperature is taken and they answer a 10 question questionnaire with the standard questions that anybody would ask, uh, trying to stratify 
uh, risk cohorts of patients that are, uh, you know, possibly infected. If uh, we have an exquisitely low tolerance for yes answers on that, and every single yes answer is run by me personally, if it's all no's, I don't need to be involved. But if there's a single yes answer to any of those questions, then the staff member leaves them on the landing, comes and gets me, reviews that with me, and I make the ultimate determination as to whether or not we're going to see the patient or we'll ask them to return in 14 days uh, and, and, and come back and see us again. I think those, plus we've cut the number of patients that we've seen in half. We see patients in every other chair. The other unique thing about orthodontic offices that's not common with dental or medical offices is that most of us work in open bay theaters. And so all of our patients are sitting right next to each other uh, with procedures being performed. Now, there's not a, nearly as many aerosolized procedures that we do compared to a dental office because most of the time we're not, we're not creating any aerosol unless they're being debonded uh, or something of that nature. However, we separate them. Every other chair is, is, uh, is being seen now. Uh, it's taken an impact, uh, hit, made an impact on our practice though, uh, the bottom line, because I'm seeing about half the patients that I would normally see. Uh, financially, that's not as fun, but I will tell you something, uh, mentally, it's awesome because it's quieter, it's a slower pace, everybody's less grouchy. Uh, because uh, because it's a forced slow pace. And we have not backed off uh, one iota on any of the strictness of our protocols. And the, the temptation was there to do so when things started looking a little brighter around August or so. Uh, I'm glad that we did not, because now that it's starting to get a little darker out there as far as forecast of the of the prevalence, I'm glad we didn't because we can we can rest assured that we never dropped our our force fields down in any way. So I think it's made a positive impact and I've been very pleased with the results. Thank you. There are, there are a couple of other questions. One relates to um, your daughter's experience. When your daughter was positive, did you work, John? Did you get, did you have a COVID test and how, how do you deal with this? That's a fantastic question. And it's something that we all face all the time when we have a, a, a family member. So I did not work until I had my test results back. And the reason is, well, it's obvious why I waited until the test results were back. Um, lay individuals might say, well, why would you go back to work even if it did say it was negative because it's a possible 14-day incubation period? But the uh, every single health department is different, but most health departments do not fall, find orthodont or dentist's offices and dental practitioners and staff to be high-risk transmitters because of all of the PPE. If we worked at Lululemon, it would be a different story. But working in a dental office where we have masks, face shields, gowns, uh, uh, you know, all of those things that are standard protocol, then on top of it, a negative test, I went back to work as soon as I was negative, uh, uh, as, soon as, as soon as my negative test came back. Now I've been tested now six, six times I've been tested and I have never been positive. Uh, uh, knock on wood. Uh, but if that is a question that ought to be asked of the state health department, and in fact, you don't even really need to ask it because they will tell you. Uh, if they're doing their job, they will tell you. They did want us to report. Uh, for, let, me, let me step back and talk about my positive staff member. Uh, we were asked, uh, the health department, uh, through interviewing the staff member, found out when they were likely infected based upon uh, their uh, symptoms and the CDC has very specific guidelines as to when you would start counting back uh, as far as the number of days that you need to go back in 
establishing the number of people that you need to inform that they had been in contact with somebody who was likely carrying and infected with uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus and then eventually had COVID-19 disease. Uh, so we, we called every single one of those patients in that individual's column that was seen that day. Here's the tricky thing. By law, we were not allowed to say the name of, of the, the assistant that was sick. And that is not hard, that is not easy because you get, I fielded many phone calls from uh, rightfully concerned parents saying, I want to know if my daughter specifically came in contact with whoever it is that you're telling me was infected in your office. And the answer was, I'd love to tell you, I can't tell you by law, but you should understand and infer by, ver by virtue of being contacted by my office that you are you were potentially exposed. However, one of the things the state health department told us to tell our patients was they were at very low risk because of the PPE and that they should not go get tested unless they were symptomatic. Those were specific instructions from our state health department from two different counties, uh, two different municipalities that had two separate uh, health departments governing. Uh, so we followed those guidelines. So, but it's gonna be different everywhere you, everywhere you go. Right. And again, is, to yeah. your point, it's a question of following, finding out for your own state and your own locale what you need to do. Exactly. And sorry, sure. much more stringent, I think, than that, including hours where you wouldn't have been able to work for two weeks unless yeah. you had yeah. a negative test and were a critical essential worker, which would be, um, you know, that you're in an essential field where no one else in that facility could do that job. Um, but it varies based on state, unfortunately. And, and the sad thing is, those those are all judgment calls. Yep. You know, and and it just depends on who's doing the judging, uh, and everybody's got a different. But it doesn't matter because you need to follow those guidelines. So wherever right. you are, you just do what you're you do what you're instructed to do, so that you're not uh, you know being treated any differently than anybody else that needs to follow those rules. Exactly right. Scott, you just mentioned the magic fourteen day period, so this will be our last question, and. Uh, I'd like you both to give a perspective on this. How do you deal with patients such as nurses who treat COVID patients with full PPE, need dental treatment? So I guess it's for you, John, but it's still relevant if it were in a medical setting. Um, they're not going to be able to have a 14-day period when they're not in contact. So how would you, how would you deal with that? Well, Scott, that's with... what you were talking about, essential, right? Yes. Well, it's partially essential, but not really. This has to do with the nurse as a patient. And I think it more has to do with high versus low risk exposure. Mm. Ostensibly, if a nurse is working in my ICU or is working on the floors or in an office, they're wearing PPE. So all of their exposures should be low risk. Right. And if they're getting low risk exposures, meaning they're wearing PPE with either knowns or unknowns, then the bottom line is they could go see you, John, for a treatment or they could see me yeah. for something or whatever. And I would right. treat them uh, like any other patient. Absolutely. In fact, one of the several of my many of my patients are doctors, and many of them work in the intensive care unit in the COVID unit. I still see them. That doesn't disqualify somebody as long as they don't have symptoms and they've been wearing the appropriate PPE as a PPE as a part of their protocol. You know, I would see you, Scott. I would see you, Scott. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Excellent. I'll think about Let, it on your side. And let's face it, people are seeing asymptomatic patients. Yeah. Yeah, and people had true. negative tests, but actually are positive. That's so right. yeah. it's all, it's already happening. Yeah. And that's an unknowable and you can't live uh, in fear of unknowables because we would, none of us would do anything. 
But would we do anything different? I mean, honestly, I, I hear it all the time in my public health perspective. Patients say, I want to know what are the zip codes and what are the addresses or clusters of addresses where people are positive. And I ask a question posed by one of my colleagues in another county near, near Cooperstown where this picture is from. And, and this person said to me, you know, would it change what you're doing? Meaning if you knew that your neighbor was positive, would you change what you're doing? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then you're not doing enough to protect yourself. So yeah, that's right. you need yeah. to do more to protect yourself, not ask questions about who is known yeah. positive. Because as you just said, John and Fiona, you mentioned before, the number of unknown or asymptomatic positives is probably far higher than those who are symptomatic. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and like you said, asking where the hot zones are is the wrong question. <laughs> yeah. That's just the wrong question. Okay, so that was, was our last uh, question. So we, we will hold other sessions and we will uh, look forward to working together again and holding those sessions. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you again. We'd like to uh, thank you for attending. And uh, after this webinar, an email link will be an email will be sent out with a link to the webinar, as well as some support materials that may be of interest. Thank you very much.